Welcome to Beyond Psychedelics, where we explore the art, the science, and the business behind the fastest growing industry in the world. My name's Scott Thiemann. I'm the CEO of Beyond Marketing. I'm here with my co-hosts. Sebastian Yepes, VP of Business Development. Dr. Curran Narwhal, Medical Director here at Beyond Marketing. Dr. Narwhal is the perfect person to do this, and he'll, he'll tell you on this podcast, call me Curran, he's great. He was the CEO of TMS Advantage in Tampa, Florida. They ran a pretty substantial operation. He treated over 500 patients over four years. He had a 92% response rate and a 70% remission rate with the work that he was doing in his clinic. So this is someone who was both working in the business and on the business. He's a wealth of knowledge and we're going to do a lot of episodes, Curran, just diving into you know what you did to be so successful in your business and with driving outcomes with patients. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate the kind words, but you know, the truth is in, in order to be in this business, you have to have that mindset of what is best clinically and what is best from a business perspective. And as you mentioned, we are in this very unique time in, in mental health. Psychedelics are trending. And I think we know that with neuromodulation and psychedelics, there, you know, there's a combinations of certain treatments, uh, treatments and the therapeutic potential is definitely there and the research is definitely there. But what's really interesting to me is the cultural shift that's taking place amongst the masses. I know Sebastian, you know, with, with what he does at our company and the, and the, the FaceTime he has with our clients, you know, you see it firsthand with what our clients are saying, the growth, the volume, the patient retention, and these words are trending in terms of what's happening in mental health. Yeah. And I think it's a really powerful space that we're in. I mean, we take a look at what's happened in the past maybe 10 years or so, and there's been a growing body of research and just evidence in general suggesting that these substances and neuromodulation itself are literally taking what's been normal and it's now flipped it on its head and people are having some massive uh, results. People that are dealing with depression or anxiety for 15 years, I literally heard somebody on the phone say this, she was dealing with depression for 15 years, went through treatment, specifically ketamine, and through a six session course, her depression was no longer what it was. And that's just one of the many examples that uh, we've heard personally. And as the space grows, one of the key things that we're looking to really bring to the picture is education. Because isn't it interesting that we have all these medicines that are available and these modalities that people can go to, but just the lack of that understanding, really understanding what they can do, holds people back from taking on the action. So it's really awesome to be in the space, to be able to educate the consumers and to be able to bring a new set of knowledge that can open up some avenue for people to take new actions that ultimately brings about some new results. And it's funny because Scott and I have talked about this in great detail. What's missing in this industry is this, this gap of information between the provider, the patient, the community, right? Local awareness, community awareness. We see the marketing trends, the advertising trends, mental health awareness month, depression awareness month. I hate to be devil's advocate here, but I feel like we have so many awareness months and weeks, but we still don't grasp the basic elements of what's important and how this translates. Interestingly enough, you know, with TMS, in my experience, the, the usage of TMS for on-label indications that are FDA cleared is pretty confirming and reassuring that we're going in the right direction. But the off-label indications, which is what I think a lot of people want to know more about, is where are we at with that? How are we treating autism? How are we treating ADHD? How are we using adjunct treatments like MDMA or LSD or even psilocybin 
um, in, in reference to people dealing with trauma or any type of other mood disorders. And that's what's really exciting is clinicians, providers, offices, people taking a leap of faith and doing things from an off-label perspective. It's kind of like, you know, if you, there's a, the old saying, no risk it, no biscuit, you know, type of situation. So let's dive in there. So for people who are listening, who they heard of psychedelics, they, they see that, you know, it's trending for lack of a better phrase. When you take psychedelics, I guess we can start with ketamine because we see ketamine clinics popping up all around the country. And I saw a meme the other day and it was the Trojan horse meme. You guys have probably seen it. And it said like on the course add ketamine, but the ketamine was really the Trojan horse for MDMA, which um, is in phase three clinical trials for maps, as I'm sure you guys know. And, uh, but anyway, so when somebody takes psychedelics, what is actually happening in the brain and body and, and what does that experience look like? So that's a great question, Scott. When, when somebody is taking psychedelics, you know, I think the word having a trip is kind of the nuance of what the public, you know, thinks uh, most of the time. But you have to keep in mind that there is something called dosing, right? So what the FDA is doing from a clinical trial perspective is trying to see what levels of dosing can we apply to make sure patients will have any adverse effects. To answer your question, the 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 something like ketamine or MDMA are trying to create this distorted sense of self. So there's a distortion of sight, sound, place, physically where you are. You may feel like you're detached to a certain sense, uh, to a certain sense. But the key word is disassociation. We disassociate from our current state of mind to a different state of mind. Now, for some people, that can be extremely traumatic or very scary if it's not monitored, supervised. So what's what's becoming somewhat of a problem, in my opinion, is, I want to say problem, but the usage of at-home ketamine versus in a clinic, because we're not regulating or supervising some of this. So we're having patients report adverse effects or bad trips, if you will. And there's something called CAP, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. I always talk about this with TMS. I always talk about this in any medications. It's not just one avenue of treatment. You can't just go to the gym and not do your cardio and just do the weights. You can't just uh, you know, uh, drive a car with tires and no engine. There needs to be other components to it. So adding therapy to this distorted self to help process what's taking place is what really results in higher efficacy for our patients. But again, you know, it's, it's, it's literally to answer your question, we are creating a sense of a trip, if, if, if you will. So, so what is going on in the body that causes that disassociation, like scientifically, chemically? I know it affects the NMDA receptor. Can you talk about um, what that means and what that is and how it works? Sure. So, you know, it depends on the type of ketamine that a patient is receiving. Um, but when a patient undergoes ketamine treatment, one of the things that takes place is this again, disassociative state, which we're talking about detaching from their body or environment, what can happen during that time is a patient can have dream-like experiences. So a patient may report that I'm, I kind of felt like I was sleeping and dreaming and having a very vivid or heavy dream. Some of these experiences, weirdly enough, can be very introspective where there's emotionally uh, very intense and you start to have a lot of heightened insight, heightened emotions, or a sense of connection and unity to certain experiences in your past. That can happen as well. Now, specifically, what's happening from a neurochemical standpoint is that your brain essentially is being told to increase 
certain levels of neurotransmitter traffic, or in 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 and to be more specific, glutamate. We're we're blocking something called NMDA receptors, and what these receptors do is they're involved in the transmission of pain signals and regulation of mood. So when you have a disassociative effect, because you're not having those pain signals firing off, and because the regulation of your mood is kind of screeching to a halt, those feelings of detachment become more and more uh, part of your body and your environment. And that what, that's what results in these hallucinations, dreamlike states, or altered perception of time and space. You might think it's the year 2035 at some point during that moment, right? But your your body is essentially having this dreamlike feeling and state. There is not you're not having muscle paralysis or anything of that nature. Like when you are actually sleeping, if you notice when you're in, when you're sleeping, you ever think about this? You're running in your sleep in your dream, right? In your dream, you're running in this field. Well, why aren't you running in bed? Because a certain part of your brain shuts off muscle paralysis. So we're not having a similar response here with psychedelics and ketamine. But what's happening is there's this dreamlike state that takes place, and we're trying to increase the most abundant neurotransmitter in your brain with ketamine specifically, which is glutamate. Again, this is very regulatory in terms of our mood and very regulatory in terms of pain. Mm, Follow-up question on that, Karen, because you just opened up um, some new understanding for me. As as the pain receptors are no longer active and as the mood regulators are also coming to a halt, is that what allows also the, I guess, the integration of maybe an experience that in the past somebody would shy away from, they would be afraid to face, and because of that, it kept running now these walls are down they're able to integrate that feeling even at a, at a subconscious level which allows them to be more present with that trauma whatever that was yeah the, the answer to that would be yes because in reality what's taking place is you are still having that connection between something called your default mode network your limbic system connected to your frontal cortex so those two parts of your brain are still processing some of this it's not like you're not processing mm. somebody if you're if a patient and I'm, not, I'm sure a lot of patients can attest to this if you're undergoing ketamine treatment and you're in that hallucinogenic state but somebody's pinching you you'll notice that pinch you'll perceive that as a threat but not to the extent you normally would if you were wide awake right so it, it there is still this uh, level of processing taking place um, but not to the extent of somebody being in a wakeful state and i just want to point out that you know What's happening in psychedelics and, and especially with, with ketamine, the legal shift is there, but the, the fact that there's a growing interest in mental health professionals to, you know, incorporate other elements of what we're doing in mental health. And obviously, you know, uh, at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, they have this downright. They're looking at the research, providing the right training and making sure the right supervision is provided on a large scale. But at the same time, you know, enforcing and recommending other, you know, avenues of, of, of treatment, which is not just ketamine or TMS. We're talking about counseling. We're talking about EMDR, right? We're talking about PTSD based treatments. A lot of times, what are we hearing about MDMA and ketamine? We're hearing a lot of great news for our veterans, but are we treating the root cause of the problem? Mm. That's what I want to really focus on here is this is a treatment, not a cure. We can maintain the symptom level, but let's treat the root cause. And that's why I want to give my counselors a big shout out. We need you guys. You guys are the crux of what we do, right? So let's emphasize that more and more. Can you share with us on on that point, Karen? Because this is working in this space for the past four years and hearing so many clinics do it so many different ways. A pattern that we've noticed is the clinics that have some ongoing support for the patient once they're done with treatment also seem to be the ones that create more lasting uh 
long-lasting results for the patient themselves. So how important is that integration? Once somebody goes to a ketamine session, for example, three hours later, they're now at home. How important is it for that person to have some practices that actually support them in the healing process? It's extremely important. Um, you know, well, to answer your question twofold, I I want to, you know, point out that a lot of providers have this concept and, you know, I'm going to sound like a bit of a jerk here, but this is the truth. Just because you're in mental health and you're a provider, you feel like you're doing a service. The job doesn't stop there. And it goes back to resources. I've talked to countless providers in the last couple of years that just because they offer a treatment or a modality of treatment or offer a, a service of counseling, that you've done your part. So to answer your question, our job goes beyond just what we do in our office. It has to be limited, not just limited to the treatments in-house. It's also making sure that, you know, there is a consolidation of services that are needed at the time and applying insights to this patient daily life because they're going to be going home and living their life. Think about it with TMS or only with me for 30 minutes a day for six weeks. They have a whole 23.5 hours left in, in the rest of the day. I have to know what's going on with that patient. So the accountability portion comes back to it. So for a patient to be accountable, the provider has to give the resources for the patient to be accountable. And that goes back to making sure that there's a follow-up process, but also a referral process. If you know this patient needs a specific treatment, just like I did, I had patients undergo ketamine treatments through a referral of mine, then come back to me for TMS to keep things consistent from a neuromodulation standpoint. But it's extremely important. And this promotes an emotional well-being on a large scale because now you're integrating this level of understanding the underlying causes of emotional struggles or mental health struggles with a better capacity to do so. Think about ketamine, TMS, MDMA. Think about it giving our patients a chance, the public a chance to get better at benefiting from things like counseling. If somebody is severely depressed, and they can't logically process the reason behind getting up early, working out, eating healthy. You can keep telling them a million times. It, it's a broken record. They're not going to process it. But now they're on a certain level or a platform to be able to understand the value in these resources. And that integration by the provider is where we need to focus on a bit more as well. Yeah, I think a part of the reason why you were so successful at helping so many people is because how you broke down the explanation of all of this and it starts with what is depression what is anxiety yeah so can you talk a little bit about some of those analogies and processes you've developed to sure sure yeah. sure Please. yeah 100 percent. well I, I you know what i mean just to keep this on a more personal level with all of us here i think we all know to a certain extent what it means to feel certain elements of depression i i i you know i think as human beings we all go through the flows of life and one out of three people have anxiety, right? Now, anxiety disorder, what's, that's a bit different, but anxiety-based symptoms, I think, you know, we can all relate to that. With that being said, you know, what exactly is taking place in the brain? And this is something that is very commonly asked to me by patients, the public, you know, providers in terms of this open discussion. We don't talk about it enough, so let's explain it. Think about the word depression. The word depression, actually, there's a Latin prefix of the word depression. The word depression, depressant, means we're slowing things down. So when we have a patient with depression, we're talking about a brain that is working at a slower rate than normal, simply put. That means that we're seeing a level of neurotransmitter release that is much less, much slower, and not enough. So we're not processing. We're not processing feelings of joy. If somebody is depressed and they pass by a restaurant they used to love to go to when they're driving with their family, 
you would think it would invoke some emotional value. But because of depression, they can't process that value. There's no reason behind it. Why are patients who are depressed have the capacity to feel suicidal and actually want to take their own life? Because they can't process the value in who they are. So the traffic that is slow isn't helping them form those thoughts, those, those, those moods or those, those notions that I am worth it. So depression, in essence, is a lack of, of activity in the brain, a lack of traffic, if you will. So I want you to think of a highway with literally like two cars on it. We got to put more cars on the highway. That's the idea. And here's the beauty. You can do this without having to use take meds in some cases, in some cases, without TMS, with ketamine. It's the choices we make. That's why accountability is number one. If you're out here smoking weed every day and drinking booze, those are depressants. And I have patients, I can't tell you, ooh, if I had a nickel for every time I heard this, I had patients always come to me and say, man, I'm, I'm, I did so well with TMS, now I'm feeling depressed again. And I'd, you know, I'd kind of smirk a little bit and I'd look at the patient, I'm like, I want to know what you've been doing. Yeah, I had a couple of beers, a couple of joints. Well, it's not good for you. So accountability obviously is there, but going back to it, it's a lack of traffic in the brain and we have to make sure we increase that traffic and keep it consistent. Now, here's the big kicker. The brain gets better at doing this. Our brains are creatures of habits. They're muscles, if you will. They practice things repetitively, routinely. So they get better at being depressed and they get better and better. So it's safe to say somebody with depression for years has practiced being depressed, not intentionally, but they have a PhD in depression. On the flip side, what is anxiety? <laughs> what is anxiety though? It's the exact opposite. There's too much traffic. So we can't process. Ah, there's that key word again, processing. So if I think about it, would you say any mental health disorder is a lack of processing? Sure. The answer could be yes, because in some ways the traffic is too high, in some ways the traffic is too low. And that's where that discussion comes in. Mental health disorders are a reflection of a chemical imbalance. Yes, more importantly, an electrochemical imbalance, but we want the processing to work because the traffic has to be in the middle. We don't want too much. We don't want too little. So anxiety is just an extracellular, or, or sorry, a extra release of neurotransmitters flooding your highway. So think of the highways, your interstate locally near your house with a thousand cars going hundred miles an hour. And we're not even processing what these cars are telling us. And again, that's why we cannot have rational thoughts. We call anxiety, irrational thoughts, right? Anxiety-based symptoms, it, 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 you know, things that are re not redirectable, not logical. We know that this plane is not going to crash, but people would you fear of flying are going to do what? They're going to have a panic attack. Because the irrationality starts to re replay again and again and again. And again, those patients, I hate to say it, because your brain has practiced doing that, you have a PhD in being anxious. It's just the way our brains work. So would ketamine work then for anxiety as well? So there are trials, there are significant studies that have shown ketamine to be effective for patients with cognitive distortions, which is a fancy word for anxiety, I guess you could say. The thing is that what we need to understand behind each case and each disorder is everyone's different. So if somebody has anxiety, the question we have to ask is, is there something metabolic taking place? And that's something I really want to emphasize. We really under undervalue the metabolic connection between our bodies and our mental health. What we put in our body, what we eat has a direct result on what's happening in our brain. So I, I, to answer your question, can ketamine help with anxiety? It's possible, but it depends on the case-by-case -case basis. If I have a patient with anxiety because of high usage of substances in their past, it's a different story, right? Because again, substance abuse 
can lead to a depletion of certain levels of, of, of neurotransmitters. At the same time, there has to be the focus on the addiction, not the residual anxiety that comes from it. So it depends on the case, but we have seen efficacy with depression and trauma to be a little bit more effective with ketamine. But I do think that there is room for improvement um, with ketamine being helpful for anxiety. I circle back to therapy again, because if a patient is undergoing treatment with ketamine for mental health symptoms, such as depression and anxiety, the usage of therapy would be much, uh, much more warranted for those types of patients. You kind of bring up a, a good point here, which is, or it kind of opens the door. There's so much we could talk about. We could go in so many directions. We're going to be doing lots of episodes. So mm-hmm. working with the therapist, you know, what if I am at a rave seeing, you know, John Summit, for example, and my friend says, hey, here's some ketamine, here's some MDMA, or, you know, hey, we're going to go do mushrooms on the beach this this weekend. So why why should somebody opt for doing it in a therapeutic uh, medical setting with a professional versus doing it with close people in their lives that they trust? Is there a pro and con to each one or what's been oh, your... There? There's, there's so much there. Well, first off, I think what we have to remember is that, you know, I've ever heard the example of patients saying, oh, I got, you know, my, my neighbors got the ketamine. So I'm just going to go there because he's going to hook it up. Cool. (laughs) What you're doing there is you're just taking a huge leap of faith of putting something in your body that hasn't been tested, regulated, analyzed. You're not being supervised. I think we know about, you know, what the media is showing in terms of fentanyl being laced in drugs all over the country. So it's, it's a bit of a concern as to, you know, using the street pharmacist, if you will, to, 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 to get this medication. I don't advocate for it. I don't think it's the safest way to go. I understand, you know, then again, being in mental health, you know, when somebody is suffering and they need relief, they'll do anything to get better, right? So I understand that that I'm empathetic to that. But at the same time, you have to do what's right and what's safe and what's regulated. And let's not forget, even the, even the FDA right now, even our, our DEA, what they're doing in the research and clinical trials is they're looking at the efficacy the safety, the mechanism of action, the dosaging. I mean, these are just a couple of parameters and are considered by our, our governing bodies. If that's not being done on a level, on a personal level with, you know, what's being provided on the streets or the clubs, then we're going to see a lot of people having really bad experiences or in some cases, some fatalities. And again, this is not something that, you know, I want to take lightly. I think it's a very serious thing, but what what's happening is that we're, we're, getting too lax with the idea that ketamine can be something like we can use just like drinking coffee and do it all the time. It doesn't work that way either. You know, it's a treatment. It's a part of a treatment option. There's an approach to take to it, but I think having supervision, medical supervision, I think having the right team behind you to support you from a counseling standpoint and the right support system at home. I can't stress that enough. If you're doing some treatments uh, for whatever purposes, and your support system at home is not helping you, that can also you know, correlate to some, some uh, bad responses. But going back to your question, Scott, I would prefer you go to the provider. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, you're, if you can still have this spiritual disassociative healing experience from ketamine, but your spouse is not on board, could that affect the outcome then for you? You know, you're talking about marriage, man. You're getting specific. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> a whole separate podcast, man. Come on. All right. So when I say support, I, I think what I'm getting at is it's important to have a positive atmosphere 
when your brain is in increasing its neuroplastic state, right? Neuroplasticity or spastic changes in your brain are taking place with TMS, with ketamine, with psychedelics overall. We're seeing that. So my point to you is I would highly consider the fact that your environment is kind of like giving your brain that protein for that workout. If TMS is your brain going to the gym, if ketamine is your brain going to the gym, make sure when you go home after the gym, you get the right protein for that workout. And that environment at home is as conducive to your benefit from treatment as a treatment itself. So I think it's important to have the right support at the same time. You don't want to piss the wife off. So you got to pick and choose your battles, bud. Karen, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so powerful what you're pointing to, because as I hear you share the the whole spectrum, because it's not just a one part, it has to be a holistic approach is the, is the a first thing that I hear is you got to treat all parts in order to be able to actually get to the full healing and the, and the actual benefits of the treatment. For someone that is right now listening who is not necessarily depressed, uh, however, you mentioned before, you could take some actions to almost like prevent it. What are some actions that we can all take to prevent either anxiety or depression to become something that is um, a consistent pattern in our brains? Sure. Yeah. No, I, I think, um, again, I say, you know, it's a, as a broken record, it's for me, everything we do is by habit, routine. I think we can all attest to this. When our routine is disrupted, we're not ourselves right? So keeping that routine going, keeping a certain schedule. And part of that routine means metabolically, neurologically, your body clock, if you're not getting enough sunlight in the morning, right? I mean, Andrew Huberman, I have a pleasure of meeting many years ago. Um, and he talks a lot of people over at Stanford. And one thing he talks about on his podcast is the 90 minutes, uh, sorry, uh, 15 minutes of sunlight, right? Extremely important. Why? Because you're increasing natural cortisol. You're increasing this natural level of the wakeful state with that at light activation from the sun holding off on coffee for the first two hours in the morning, letting your body kind of increase its adrenalines on, on its own. These all contribute to your neurochemical balance of making sure you can redirect some of those anxious thoughts. Also exposure to certain things. If you are somebody who's watching murder mysteries constantly and you have lots of anxiety, hello, <laughs> you know, we don't want to watch that, right? If you're somebody who is, 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 is in situations where you're not making the right choices because you're just, you know, making irrational choices, quite fre uh, frequently and you're not able to logically process as to why it could be something work-related or, 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 you know, personally related, just take a step back and assess, assess your situation. What exactly are you doing to yourself and why are you wiring yourself that way? Mm -hmm. It's like kids that are expo exposed to loud sounds throughout their life. They hear a bell. There's an old experiment done many, many years ago where the little Albert experiment, I don't know if you guys ever heard of that, they took a large bell and every time this kid would be near Santa Claus or, or a fluffy animal, they would hit the bell. So every time they brought another Santa Claus looking person or, or, or a little bunny rabbit, the kid would start freaking out. There was no bell. So the association was anxiety based. So my thing, my point to you is let's disconnect some of the associations that give us the anxiety, maybe assess what correlates or what connects the dots to make us feel anxious, make, make us feel distorted, if you will. And that's something that I definitely, you know, would, would recommend. And then to answer your question again, it's best, best practices of, of what we do on a daily basis, healthy routines, healthy diets. Um, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know, you, you, we, 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 we have to keep pushing that agenda. So powerful. I feel like we're just scratching the surface. So much. Oh yeah. Come. Oh yeah. Definitely. Sebastian, Curran, thank you guys for being here. We covered a lot of ground here. We talked about what is depression? What is anxiety? What's the mechanism of how ketamine is working and affecting the brain? 
Today was our first episode. I think we did okay, right? We did good. Oh, yeah. So lots more to come. Um, stay tuned. We're going to be featuring experts from around the industry. And this is just the beginning for Beyond Psychedelics. Thank you so much for being here.